for tonight, and uh, if you need notes, we have extra sets of notes at tables, so let's make sure that, pardon? There's some notes down on the refreshment table. There's also some extra notes around the tables. We want to make sure everyone gets an outline of Luke chapter 4 tonight. This is something you can take home. We're going to each week, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, give you an outline of each chapter. Hopefully that will help even as you go back and maybe refer to some things later on. And so in our worship time tonight, it, it really falls in line with, with this chapter and what's happening here. Because I, I want to start out with this before we even get into the chapter tonight. The overarching theme that God wants to assure us about is that Jesus Christ is beyond anything and everything. So that, as Nicole even said, if, if we're struggling with something, if we're dealing something, we have to be reminded that Jesus Christ is greater than that. Greater than that situation. Bigger than that problem. Beyond that issue. Jesus Christ is fully capable of helping us handle each and everything that life brings us, no matter how difficult it is. And that's what Luke is going to remind us of in Luke chapter 4. Because we start out tonight talking about the temptation of Jesus. But in context, I want us to link chapter 4 for just a second back to the end of chapter 3. Because at the very end of the genealogy that Luke gives us, that we talked about last week in Luke chapter 3, the final name there is Adam, where Jesus is traced all the way back to Adam. And we saw last week that that is because that Luke wants to present Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam failed the test that he was given in the Garden of Eden. Jesus Christ, we're going to see tonight and throughout the rest of his earthly life, through his death and resurrection, that Jesus Christ passed the test. Passed the test with flying colors, as we said. It didn't matter what came at him, Jesus Christ passed the test. And the encouragement then that Luke wants to give us is this. If you and I are connected to Jesus Christ in a living relationship, then again, there is nothing going to come at us in this life that connected to Jesus Christ, we cannot overcome. Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus said to his followers in Matthew 28, All authority and power is given to me. Now go into all the world. Make disciples teaching all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So remember that tonight. Wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, whatever life is bringing at you right now, whatever pressures you're dealing with, whatever stress you're dealing with, Jesus Christ is greater than that. Notice then, in chapter 4, the Bible tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. 
where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were completed, he was famished. And then the devil began these particular temptations. I personally believe Jesus was tempted all 40 days that he was in the wilderness. Let's look first there at the outline, and you'll see that I put there right under the temptation of Jesus, the reality and strategy of spiritual attack. That's what Luke is going to talk to us about in these first 13 verses. First of all, that the devil is real. That he's not something made up. That the devil is real. The word devil in the Bible means slanderer, accuser, defamer. That's what the devil does. He wants to accuse us. He wants to slander us. He wants to defame us. The name Satan means adversary. And the Bible teaches us about the reality of spiritual warfare. Now, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that there is a demon behind every bush and that there's a demon uh, that causes everything to go wrong in my life. I think most of what we end up suffering from, if you will, in this world is our own bad choices and the bad choices that others make. But the Bible does teach that there are times where we are going to be under spiritual attack just as Jesus was. And we see here in these 13 verses sort of Satan's strategy, a demonic strategy that is used not only against Jesus, but has been used by Satan ever since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 and will be used by Satan and his minions all throughout history. And so therefore, that's why it's good to study this passage because he's going to use the same strategy against us as well. So I think that this is going to be a real practical, relevant, as the Bible always is, I think, message for us. Because notice, in the outline, the very first thing is, we, like Jesus, will be attacked at vulnerable, opportune moments. Satan and his demonic forces will sit back and they will observe. They're not in any hurry. They will watch us and wait for times that are most opportune to attack, most vulnerable. Sometimes that's after great victory. You'll notice when the temptation of Jesus came. It came after a high point. It came after his baptism by John the Baptist. It came after the dove descended and God the Father said in front of all those who were present there, this is my beloved son. Hear him. He's the Messiah. He's the one the Old Testament talked about. And Jesus began his earthly ministry. And it was a great time, if you will, and should have been of great celebration. I believe that the reason why the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness was not to be tempted. He led him into the wilderness, as he did many times, to commune with God, to get ready for the ministry that was to follow when he came out of the wilderness. But while he was there, Satan took advantage of that opportune moment. And he will do the same thing in our lives. We need to be aware of when we are vulnerable. Sometimes when we're very much spiritually, emotionally, and physically drained, that's another opportune time. Other times when things are going really well and we sort of let our guard down, those are the times that Satan will attack. And we know that Satan is an opportunistic being. If you look at verse 6 for just a moment, 
He said to him, to you, I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it. This is Satan talking to Jesus because notice it has been relinquished to me. In the NIV, it says given to me. But the idea of the Greek here is that an opportunity presented itself and Satan seized it. You see, the reason why Satan could offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world is because he seized them when the opportunity presented itself. If you go back to Genesis, God always intended for man to have dominion over the earth, to rule and to reign. And one day, because of Christ, we will get that opportunity again. But because of the fall, because of sin entering into the world through Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, in a sense, gave up that right and privilege to be able to truly have dominion over the kingdoms of the world, as God intended. And therefore, Satan was right there, ready to seize them when they fell into his lap. That's how opportunistic Satan is. Notice also, there will be the choice to meet legitimate needs or goals in illegitimate ways. That's always going to be state and strategy. Why do I say that? Well, look at the very first temptation. Verse 3, the devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread, because Jesus was hungry. The Bible says he was famished. He was suffering from hunger. Legitimate need. I'm hungry. (laughs) I need to eat. But Satan will always tempt us to meet legitimate needs or goals in illegitimate ways. Let me give you an example from church today. There's nothing wrong with church growth. But when churches use worldly means, when churches water down the message of God's Word in order to grow, that is trying to achieve a legitimate goal in an illegitimate, unbiblical way. Satan will always tempt us in that way. Here's a goal. Here's a need. What's the shortcut? Because Satan is always about shortcuts. And can I just say, I don't want to say never, but almost never. God is never about shortcuts. Never. Satan is always about shortcuts. And we live in a world today that is all about shortcuts. I want the quick, easy fix. And with God, there is many times no quick, easy fix. It is entering into a life of commitment to Christ and and things will happen as I enter into spiritual growth and maturity. And through a lifetime of disciplining, I will see things happen, but not in a snap of a finger. You'll notice Jesus answered him and said, It is written, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, there are some things more important than me satisfying my physical hunger, and that is depending on God. In fact, you'll notice in all three temptations it's recorded here in the Gospel of Luke, all three of these tests enticed Jesus to abandon his dependence on God. So that's something we need to be aware of. Which goes back to the whole reason why Lucifer fell in the first place. Because the Bible tells us he wanted to be independent of God. He no longer wanted to live depending on God. So therefore, you and I have to be aware of that. 
when we're in a position where we can either choose to wait and depend on God or choose to take matters into our own hands and be independent of God, then we can see the clarity of the choice before us. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Notice also, there will be focus on short-term pleasure. Never, though, will Satan give us the long-term consequences or effects. Verse 5, the devil led him up on a high place, showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. He said to him, to you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it, because it has been relinquished to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish, so then if you will worship me, all this will be yours. Sounds good. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. But Satan will never talk to us about, so if Jesus would have done that, that meant he could have never went to the cross, never taken our sins. We would have died in our sins. I mean, sounds good at first. And that's the way Satan will do with us. When he presents something to us, he will always make it look good, but he never tells us what the ramifications or consequences of all that and how it all falls out. That is never part of his strategy. Of course, Jesus answered him and said, It is written, You are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Notice here in this temptation, like it will be with us, that there will be the temptation to exalt self. The Bible teaches us that we should never worry about exalting ourselves. Because if God wants to exalt us, give us a greater position of influence and all that, God will do it. And God will do it in His time, after He has prepared us. You look at all the Bible characters... Look at Joseph and all that he went through. Look at Moses. Look at David. Look at anyone that God truly used. They had to go through a long period of preparation and training. Again, there's no shortcuts. And so Satan is always going to say, hey, exalt yourself and bypass the cross and go immediately to the crown. But again, that's never God's process. God's process for Jesus and for us is always the cross before the crown. Satan is always trying to get us to grab the crown and get rid of the cross. But Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you and I have to be willing to take up our cross, die to self every day. But that's not Satan. Exalt yourself. Go right for the crown. Bypass the cross. And Jesus, again, is our great pattern. He had to embrace the cross before he received the crown. You and I have to do that as well. And then finally, there will be a subtle mixture of truth and error in an attempt to deceive. You'll notice in the last temptation, the devil brought him to Jerusalem had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And now Satan begins to quote scripture. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. How many Christians could quote a verse from the book of Deuteronomy? Satan knows the Bible. 
He knows the Word of God. That's why the Bible teaches us to beware, very wary of false teachers and false prophets because they will mix truth and error. They will use Scripture. They will twist Scripture to their own ends and to further their own means. And that's exactly what Satan does. He says, He will command His angels concerning you to protect you, and with their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, sounds pretty good. But Jesus answered him and said, You are not to put the Lord your God to the test. You are not to challenge God to see how he's going to react, is what Jesus said. Because the intent of what God said in the book of Deuteronomy that Satan is quoting was being twisted. See, And that's what Satan will do. That's what false teachers will do. That's why we have to be knowledgeable of the Word of God. Because they will mix just enough truth and error in order to get us to buy into it. Always been the strategy of Satan, always will be the strategy of Satan. Notice then in your notes, the keys to spiritual victory. The same things that were key for Jesus' victory over Satan is the same keys for us. First of all, be prepared for spiritual attack at all times. We don't know when those necessarily opportune, vulnerable times are. And, and sometimes we can be aware, oh, I'm, I'm vulnerable right now. I better be prepared. Other times, again, he's very intelligent. Our spiritual enemies are very intelligent. They may throw a curve and come at us when we don't think we're vulnerable or it's an opportune time. That's why the Bible teaches we must always be prepared we must always put on the spiritual armor of God. Let me just read these verses to you real quick out of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His power. Clothe yourselves with the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground on the evil day, the day of attack. Every day that we wake up as Christians, we should be putting on the full armor of God. That's how we are prepared for spiritual attack. Secondly, be filled with the Spirit. Notice in, in Luke verse 1, chapter 4, Jesus was full, thoroughly permeated, with the Holy Spirit. And throughout the Gospels, the Bible talks about even though Jesus Christ was the Son of God, Jesus on earth, because He laid aside when He came as a man, the independent use of His attributes as God, He therefore had was by example for us allowing God the Father and God the Spirit to lead Him. And you and I can stand up to the attacks when we are full of the Spirit. Third, be armed with the Word of God. Notice every time that Jesus was tempted, He answered with Scripture. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. 
That's again another reason why we need to know the Word of God. So that we can speak truth when lies and falsehood comes against us. In fact, just going to throw this out right now. Besides the Bible, one of the best books I think it's ever been written for Christians is called Telling Yourself the Truth. It's a book about what we tell ourselves, what we allow other people to tell us, what we allow Satan to tell us. Satan is the father of lies. Other people tell us lies and things that aren't true. We tell ourselves lies. And yet, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. But the only way, even as Christians, we're truly going to be free is when we learn to tell ourselves the truth. Well, I can't tell myself the truth if I don't know the truth. That's why I've got to get into the Scriptures. I've got to know what the Word of God says. Jesus used the Scriptures. He filled Himself with the Word of God. Fourth, lastly, as far as the temptation of Jesus... He stayed focused on the eternal rather than the temporal outcome of his choices. Again, that's because that's where Satan is going to try to get us. The quick, shortcut, pleasure for a season moment, and yet doesn't want us to think for a moment about how others are going to be affected, what is going to be the long-term pain after that short-term pleasure is gone, What's going to be the eternal consequences of that? He doesn't want us to think or focus on that at all. He just wants us to be in the moment. And so the more we stay focused on what's this going to mean a thousand years from now? What's this going to mean a million years from now? When I've been in heaven for a million years. That's what we need to stay focused on. Those are the keys to spiritual victory. And again, Luke is reminding us here, if Jesus can overcome Satan himself and the very strongest, best temptations that Satan can throw, then Satan, or excuse me, Jesus, our high priest, our mediator, our helper, our friend, our Lord and Savior, he can help us to overcome anything that will come at us. And so be encouraged, my friends. Jesus Christ is with you. Let's look then, beginning in verse 14 for a moment, at the lessons from Jesus' ministry. Many of these, I think, we can apply to our own life and ministry. And not just ministry, but even Whatever your occupation is, whatever you do out there in the world, what especially whatever you do for Christ, I think that there can be many parallels here. At least there should be for the Christian. Because notice, first of all, we learn in verse 14 that Jesus' ministry was in the power of the Spirit. Verse 14, then Jesus, in the power, the strength, the influence, the resources of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and news about Him spread throughout the surrounding countryside. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by all. I want you to notice here in this passage, and I'd like, you to, I'd like to encourage you to read this for yourself because we're not going to have time to go down verse by verse from verse 14 through verse 44, but read this passage for yourself and see how central the teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus was. Today we live in a world within the church community as a whole where teaching and preaching God's Word continues to be minimized. 
and put on the back shelf. Other things are taking front and center. But if you study the life of Jesus Christ, His teaching and preaching ministry was front and center. And notice that leads me to the second point. His ministry was centered in the Scriptures. Notice the Bible says, Jesus came to Nazareth, verse 16. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was His custom. Don't miss that either. As someone who's very pro-local church, that's me, this phrase, as was His custom, means simply that Jesus had a regular habit of attending public worship. If Jesus was in the habit as the Son of God of attending public worship, why do I think it's not important for me? And the Bible goes on to say that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. I don't think it was any accident. I think Jesus actually picked this portion of Scripture out. And notice what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. As was per Jewish custom, the rabbis, the teachers, would get up and stand up to read the Word of God. They did that because, not to elevate themselves, but to elevate, if you will, the Word of God. Then, after they read it, they would comment on it. They would speak about it. They would teach. They would preach. But instead of, like us, many times doing that also from a standing position, in Jewish custom, the rabbi or teacher would sit down. And I want you to try to put yourself in that synagogue that day. Even if you don't believe Jesus Christ at this point is the Son of God. Notice the Bible says that all eyes, verse 20, are fixed on Him. Because after He's read this passage, they've already heard what a tremendous teacher this guy is. And they can't wait to hear His comments about this passage. What's Jesus going to say? I mean, let's just dream for a moment. Let's just dream that Jesus Christ would float down to the oasis some Sunday or Tuesday and open up the Word of God and begin like they did in that day, to read a passage and then to expound upon it, to teach it, just as we do. We're not doing anything different than Jesus did. Can you imagine the attention in the room that after Jesus reads this passage, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, oh my golly, he's going to teach us. Jesus is going to teach, he's going to comment on this passage. I can't wait to hear what Jesus has to say. And here's what he said. Verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled even as you heard it being read. Basically what Jesus is saying I'm the Messiah. I'm the one the Old Testament talked about. I'm the one the Old Testament... And I'm right here. 
in your midst. I have come, here I am. Wow. Which leads me to the next point. His ministry made himself vulnerable. (laughs) Ministry always will. Because ministry and service for God always requires that we put ourselves out there. It just does. Can I tell you, that's why a lot of Christians don't ever really minister. Because they don't want to put themselves out there and make them vulnerable. Themselves vulnerable. But God wants us to do that. Even though we know, as we're going to see in a minute, that any time, any of us, including the Lord himself, any time we put ourselves out there and make ourselves vulnerable, yeah, we're going to get hurt. We're going to get rejected. If Jesus got rejected, if Jesus wasn't accepted, if his ministry wasn't accepted, why do we think that everything that we do for God, everyone's just going to put their arm and, and just embrace and say, oh, you're the greatest, you know? No, it's not going to happen. His ministry was also faced with others' expectations. Notice the Bible says, all were speaking well of him in verse 22 and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. But at the same time, because he was in his hometown, they said, but isn't this Joseph's son? I'm adding a little bit here to the word of God. But you can just hear him. Didn't our son or daughter play with him when he was a kid? I love the words that he's saying, but him, the Messiah? I I just can't wrap myself around that. And Jesus said to them, No doubt you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself and say, What we have heard that you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown too. There's the expectation. And notice the word heard, that's key. They don't say what we knew you did in Capernaum. It was almost like, you know, we heard you did these miracles and stuff, but we're not convinced. Why don't you do them here so that we can see them before our own eyes and then we'll make up our minds whether you're really the Messiah or not. Anytime we minister and serve, we just might as well be prepared. There's going to be other people's expectations. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And all of us who minister and serve have to just be very confident and clear about what God has called us to. And and not that we don't take input or listen to others, but there's times where we just have to smile and say, but that's not what God's called me to do. Here's what I need to stay focused on. And sometimes, in fact, many times, those things may even be good things. But here's what I need to focus on. For instance, I'll just use myself as an example. There are many other things that Jeff Royce could spend my time each week doing besides studying the Word of God. But because a long time ago, now almost 30 years ago, I knew that God primarily, out of everything else He wanted me to do as a pastor, the one thing He wanted me to focus on was to teach His Word that that is the number one thing that I spend my time on each week is studying the Word of God and preparing my heart to teach it to God's people. It's not that other things that I could do aren't good. 
But then if I get too involved in those, then I take myself away from the primary thing that God wants me to focus on. That's why I always encourage Christians, narrow the focus of your life. Too often we're trying to do too many things well and we end up doing none of them well. Don't live based upon others' expectations. Notice his ministry was met with rejection. He added in verse 24, I tell you the truth, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Welcomed, received, embraced. In a sense, Jesus is laying down a principle for us. That people generally are more welcoming of a stranger or somebody they don't know as well as somebody they're more familiar with. Now think about that. Sometimes we're more loyal because of ignorance than we are loyal out of knowledge. There's a lot more I could say, but i got to go on. When I say his ministry was met with rejection, let me skip down here. They finally got angry, and I'm going to go back to what Jesus said to really make them angry, besides the fact that he was the Messiah. Look at verse 29. They got up, forced him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They were trying to murder Jesus. Yeah, I think that counts as rejection. That reminds us, sometimes ministry can be dangerous. Maybe not to that degree, but... And of course, the Bible says that he passed through the crowd and went on his way because it wasn't his time to die and that wasn't the way he was going to die. But that didn't mean that people were fed up with Jesus' ministry. When you and I minister for the Lord, there are going to be those who reject us. Who say, no, I don't buy it. And that's fine. Because we're going to see why in just a moment. His ministry was focused on those who were receptive. Why do I say that? Well, Notice back up in verse 25, Jesus gives them this story that illustrates this truth. He says, I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up three and a half years. There was a great famine over all the land. But God sent Elijah not to Israel, he sent Elijah to a Gentile woman. Verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Yet God did not send Elisha to Israel. He sent Elisha to a Gentile named Naaman. And that's when the Bible says in verse 28, when they heard it, they were filled with such rage, they wanted to murder him. Why is Jesus sharing that, those stories from Elijah and Elisha's life? The reason why God didn't send those two prophets to Israel was because Israel was totally rejecting God's prophets. They were hard-hearted. God was going to send his prophets to people who would receive them and welcome them and their message. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. He said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't 
burn up all your energy trying to convince people that aren't receptive to receive. There are too many other people out there who will be receptive of your, of your ministry. So don't focus on those who aren't receptive. Focus on those who are. Especially as a young pastor. I had to learn this the hard way. Because early on in my ministry, I burned up a lot of energy trying to minister to the people that really didn't want my ministry. I almost felt like, you know, I, you know, I want them to like me. I want them to receive me. I, I want them to have my ministry too, but they didn't really want it. And it was like, finally, through some spiritual mentors and through God himself, it was like God said, Jeff, why are you spending all this time with these people who aren't receptive to what I've called you to? Because there are others over here who would love to have you teach them the word and, and share your gift. So, focus on them. Yeah, God, that does make sense. And it's a lot less frustrating, too. His ministry was sure, not speculative, clear, not ambiguous. When you go down to verse 31, it says, When he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, on the Sabbath, he began to teach the people. Again, notice the teaching there. They were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority. And the implication is that Jesus' teaching was different than all the other religious leaders in Israel. Why? For this very reason. The word authority means that when he spoke, there, you could tell he was sure about what. There was a confidence in what Jesus was saying. In the religious leaders, they went into all this speculation. Well, it could be this, it could be that, we're not sure. It never gave anybody any security, any stability in their life. Because they weren't even sure about what God had said. So there was no way they could pass that surety, that confidence onto anybody else. Yet when God calls us to minister on His behalf, He wants us to be people who are sure, who are confident about what He has said. And pass that on to others. The same thing there. He was clear. Yeah, they, they were so ambiguous. You know, it was, they caused more confusion. People would come to hear them and they would leave scratching their heads and more confused about God and, and His Word than they were when they came. But when people heard Jesus, it was like He just cut through it all. It's like, here's what God said, here's how you can do it. Wow, we haven't heard that kind of teaching before. It's so straightforward. And God wants our ministry to be the same. Notice, I'm not going to take a lot of time here. His ministry would stir up the spiritual world. He came and out of the synagogue in a spirit of an unclean demon, verse 33, cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, I love this. The demons, obviously, as you're going to read, they knew who Jesus was. They know he's the Son of God. But they have the audacity to basically, because in the Greek, this is an indignant statement. They are basically as demons telling Jesus, leave us alone. You are interfering with what we're trying to do. Can you imagine? I mean, I know I've said things to God that I should have never said. But I don't know whether I've ever been quite that, you know, you're interfering, God, leave us alone. And of course, Jesus rebuked them. 
Literally, in the Greek, when he says silence, the word means to muzzle. He basically shut the mouths of the demons. But I want you to know that his ministry was stirring up the spiritual world. And can I say, when you and I are... When God is using you, when, when your life is making a, a positive impact and influence on other people, you're going to stir up the spiritual world. Satan and his demons aren't just going to let you continue to, you know, encourage people and make all this progress without getting some kind of pushback. And Jesus was experiencing the same thing. And then, notice, his ministry, though, would be sustained in fellowship with God. Because if you go over, after all the healings and things that Jesus did, notice it says in chapter 4, verse 42, that the next morning Jesus departed and went to a deserted place. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, you will see where Jesus got away from the crowds and got alone with God. And he was, in a sense, again, setting a great example for us. That in order to minister effectively in public, we've got to spend much quality time in fellowship alone with God in private. That's how we sustain our ministries over the long haul. That prevents us as Christians from getting burned out. When we're ministering out of the overflow of God's personal ministry into our lives. I want you to add one more and I'm going to close. I want you to add one more. If you're taking notes, this would be H-I-J. I'm glad I remembered what come after I. The next lesson from Jesus' ministry, he is thoroughly in control. He is Lord of all. He is thoroughly in control. He is Lord of all. I just want to give you a couple examples of that. In verse 36, they were all amazed and began to say to one another, what's happening here? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. The word commands means to put in their place. And then when he went in and found Simon's mother-in-law suffering, Notice in verse 39, he stood over her and commanded the fever and it left her. And immediately she got up and began to serve them. It didn't matter whether it was a fever. It didn't matter whether it was a demon. Luke is telling us Jesus can put anyone or anything in its place. He is the Lord of all. He is thoroughly in control of each and every situation. So with that, Here's what I want to leave you folks with tonight, my friends. Whatever you've come here with, whatever you're dealing with, whatever situation, whatever life pressure, whatever is going on in your life, be reminded that Jesus Christ is thoroughly in control about the things that are totally out of our control. And He is the Lord of all. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Put your confidence in Him. Hope in Him. There is nothing that we will ever face in life 
that Jesus Christ cannot help us to overcome. Tonight, when you lay your head on that pillow tonight, and you begin to not be able to sleep because you're thinking and worrying about things especially that are out of your control, remember this. Jesus Christ is thoroughly in control. He is Lord of all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these reminders tonight. As we look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and see that there was nothing, whether it was the temptations of Satan, whether it was sickness and illness, whether it was demonic spirits, whether it was rejection by people, whatever it was, Jesus passed the test. He was always beyond whatever He was faced with. And that same Jesus wants to come into our life and wants to help us to navigate each and every step of life so that whatever life brings in our lives, we can overcome. We can rise above the circumstances. We can go beyond what we ever thought we could do on our own because Jesus is Lord of all. May we, Lord, Place into your very capable hands tonight our lives and everything we're dealing with. And help us, Lord, to meditate on this chapter and learn who you really are and that we can rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you Sunday. Don't forget, potluck Sunday.